everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Junior Faculty Development Series in the Department of Pediatrics. I am Frances Chang, an instructor in the Department of Pediatrics and a pediatric hospitalist. Hi, I am Gautami Soma, an assistant professor and also a pediatric hospitalist in the Department of Pediatrics. Our topic today is quality improvement and safety for academic faculty, and our main objective for today's discussion is to help our listeners think about scholarship and quality and patient safety and how to become involved in quality improvement projects using examples described in this session. We are excited today to have Matt Grossman here with us today. Matt wears many hats in leadership at Yale that includes being an associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics, interim chief of the section in hospital medicine, vice chair for quality in the Department of Pediatrics and quality and safety officer of Yale New Haven Children's Hospital. Let's start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself, your path at Yale, and what you do in your current roles. Great. Welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. It's great <laughs> to be here. Um, so uh, I have been, I started at Yale in 2003 as an intern and did my residency here and then ended up staying on as one of the first hospitalists. We just started a hospitalist program uh, a year earlier. And so there was just two of us for, for quite a while. And uh, we were very clinically focused at that time. Dr. Hirsch and I were the, were the only two hospitalists for a long time. And we were uh, mostly focused on our, our clinical work and didn't uh, and we were medical directors of our units. And then um, we started to grow a little bit and get a little more off service time. And um, a few years back, we had just started a quality and safety program, although I'm not sure a lot of people knew about it. And the person who was uh, running it uh, left, went to a different institution. And there really wasn't anyone to, left to take over for her. Uh, I had been to two of the quality meetings, which was my quality experience up to that point. Uh, and they were two of the more dull meetings I've ever been to. <laughs> um, so uh, I was a approached by uh, Cynthia Sparer, uh, who was uh, the executive director of the Children's Hospital, about whether I would be interested, along with the outgoing person, whether I'd be interested in this job. And I, I, the truth is, I didn't know what it was. And I didn't, and it was, I didn't know what quality meant. So I said, I, well, maybe, but I don't know what you're talking about. And so they gave me a book to read. Uh, and I read it, and it was interesting. It was a book uh, called Best, and it was a it was uh, a series of of kind of vignettes about quality in in healthcare, and I thought it sounded interesting. Uh, and so that's sort of where I really was starting. It was not something that I set out to do or knew what it was, but you know, an opportunity came up, and so I thought I would give it a try as the as the interim person for a while. And so, and I found it was it was pretty interesting, and it kind of fit with how I thought about problems. So it was I felt. After pretty quickly, I felt like it was a pretty good fit for me, and I under and I learned what the definition of it was, which was a really nice place to start. And so, quality and quality can mean different things in different, uh, you know, means different things to car makers. But in, in healthcare, uh, generally, it's thought to mean six different things. One is safety, uh, safety of care. So more more than just do no harm, but how do we make sure that that we're building in systems that keep patients safe, timeliness. Um, that we are there aren't unnecessary delays or waits for patients, which medicine is famous for, and then effectiveness: Are we doing the right things at the right time? Uh, are we not doing too much of things? Are we being efficient? Are we, uh, which is not another thing we're not famous for in, in medicine, but efficiency includes not losing um, ideas of of our workforce, 
And then equitable. Is everybody getting the same care regardless of their status in society? And then patient-centered and uh, or family-centered in our case that's focused on how the families are operating. So it's, it's really a chance to how do we figure out how to do things better is, is kind of how I think about it in, in, in one sentence. And that's kind of a fun thing to do. And that's how I got here. And then sort of we started to have a couple of successes and, uh, and we've managed to grow our group a little bit over the last few years. Um, tell me about what you think is the, are some of the most important principles uh, for quality in patient care. I know you talked a little bit about it, but maybe you can tell some stories. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, there's, it's, a, it's a lot of words in there, but it really, w- with those, those six parts of it, um, you know, I think for, for the faculty, one of the things that, that uh, I have the most fun talking about is, is the effectiveness of care. And it's really uh, answering the question is, how do you know you're delivering good care? And we all, everyone's trying hard, everyone likes to think they're delivering it, but how do you, how do you prove it? So how do, you, how, how do you know that you're doing the right things for everybody? How, if somebody asks you that question, how do you say other than, yeah, we think we do a pretty good job, how do you actually show with the data that you have at hand that you're actually delivering good care? And what does it mean? And even defining it is often really difficult. We start to think about it, and that works, you know, as, as you guys as hospitalists know. We, we ask us, ourselves those questions that it's often difficult to answer. What does it mean to give good care for all of these patients or with these specific diagnoses. So actually thinking about that and then usually when you've thought through it, it may mean that, oh, look, these patients with these this disease are supposed to get these uh, studies or get, be seen this often or have the, the, this kind of evaluation periodically and making sure those things happen. Um, and it's, it's often really comes down to making sure you're doing the right thing over and over again. Great. Um, thanks for going through that with us. Um, you mentioned that, um, and we know you've led several initiatives in quality and safety for our hospital. Could you tell us a little bit more about two or three of them, and what was the process that you developed these initiatives and how you carried them out? Sure, I can tell you. There was one that w- that was just published this week that I, I wasn't the leader of, but I I, I helped with sort of the, the the quality angle of it. And I, I, so it's one I think is really impressive. It was led by uh, Farzana Pashenkar with her sickle cell population. And um, it actually started with looking at one of our, our databases called the Pediatric, Pediatric Health Information System, which compares uh, billing and diagnostic data from now 52 children's hospitals around the country. And so basically, you can look at what your length of stay is for all kids with a sickle cell diagnosis and compare it to all these other hospitals. And when we looked at that, it looked like our length of stay was a little bit longer than most other places, which was a good place to start to look at it. And it turned out it, it's, it turned out it was not it wasn't really long. And when we thought about it more, we didn't really care what the average length of stay is because one of the ways you can fix, fix average length of stay is to admit a bunch of people who don't need to be admitted, keep them for a day and send them home and then your average length of stay goes down. But it, it led to thinking about what what really it meant to deliver good care. How do we do the best for these patients? And it was keeping them out of the hospital. And so when these kids with sickle cell disease end up in the hospital with their pain crises, their whole lives are disrupted. They're out of school. Uh, they're, they're ju- they just lose all the momentum of their life. And so the more you can keep them home and in their life, the more it's going to be good for their mental health and just their general life. And so that's what we set out to do is to reduce the amount of days 
that this population was spending in the hospital each month. And and the way that, that went about it, I thought, was, was, was really interesting. So there was two parts to it. One was to standardize the care, and which is great. We like to do that. And, and, and that's that can be useful uh, when you're thinking about making sure that we know these are the right things to do or these things work. And let's generally try to do that for almost everybody. You know, there'll be people who it doesn't apply for. but And so one of the things that uh, they started to do was do for the patients who were admitted, they would do a group session um, with uh, one of the child psychiatrists and social workers and, and members of the team to sort of talk about some of the challenges. And so they, they were able to run those things. They, they standardized their pain plans, um, standardized uh, some of the medication choices and also some of the stuff in the emergency department and, and had a nice reduction in the hospital days by doing that, but not that dramatic. So there were about 220 kids in the sickle cell program when we started looking at this. And um, what uh, Farzana and her team team saw was was basically somewhere between 45 and 50% of the hospital days were actually 11 kids. And so what turned out what these kids need wasn't standardized care. They needed specialized care. So so, uh, those patients were split up between some of the social workers and, and care coordinators looking at specifically what each one of these kids needed. A lot of them needed uh, a lot more mental health services. Some needed needed just ability to travel to appointments or ability to get meds. And so really focusing and surrounding those kids and, and getting resources to those kids. And suddenly, th- that's where the length of stay really dropped. Now, what happens in, you know, as you would imagine, teenagers have a tougher time with this. And so the teenagers will age out of the program and will get replaced by new teenagers. So it was really innovative in this as as Farzana and, and, and Lynn Balsamo, they said, well, well okay, let's, let's, let's see who's, who's a, who are the kids who are going to replace these kids who are, who are moving out of the program. So they started to do the same thing with the next 20 kids who they thought were likely to be the high utilizers of the hospital. And by doing that, they have sustained this. So they, the, the hospital days went down by 70%. The number of kids in the program went up to 250. So they had an increase uh, in the program of almost 10%, but a decrease in 70% of the hospital days that has been sustained. And actually, one of the first interventions having that group program, they can't do it anymore because there aren't enough kids in the hospital to do that anymore, which is a pretty good reason for one of their interventions not to work. So I think that's that's a, a recent one that is, I think, very impressive. Um, the, the Another one uh, that Jeremy Asnes uh, led that was also published recently I like this one. This was reducing the amount of radiation that kids uh, who get um, the interventional cardiology procedures that, that they receive. What's nice about this is, A, you don't see the results of this anytime soon. And so the, the effect that that might have is really going to be a long-term effect on their care. And second, uh, when they started this project, their rates of delivering radiation were about average. They, they, they were doing fine. But Jeremy thought they could do better. And this was mostly standardizing things, making things, making it, uh, turning down the amount of radiation that comes out and making that the default, uh, using smaller windows, doing things that are that are pretty basic, but standardizing them. And they dropped their radiation levels by 70%. So they are well below anything that anyone else wow. has. And so that was really impressive. And that was fairly, those were fairly, it wasn't an easy project, but they were mm-hmm. fairly simple interventions. And then the one that I, I had the most uh, to do with was, was working with babies with neonatal abstinence syndrome. Um, and this is one that, this one took a long time. This is sort of how you sort of learn how to do quality improvement with this project. Um, and and uh, so 
the neonatal absence syndrome is basically uh, babies who are withdrawing from opioids uh, that moms are usually using some sort of opioid, be it heroin or methadone or buprenorphine. And the number, along with the opioid crisis in the country, we've seen way more of these kids. The number of these kids has gone up about five or sixfold uh, over the last um, 10 or 12 years. So it's been a huge surge in it. And, and kids with, with uh, neonatal absence syndrome or NAS have outside of prematurity the longest length of stay of anything in pediatrics. The average length of stay around the country after a lot of improvement efforts is around three weeks. When we started working on it here, we were at four weeks. Literature shows things that are that are seven or eight weeks uh, in length of stay. So we weren't too far out of the ordinary. And there was a very standardized uh, way of caring for these kids. And there was, there was just a little bit of variation around each part of it. And, and the idea was these babies would be born, they would go to NICUs, they'd be managed by using something called the Finnegan tool, uh, which would just measure the various signs of withdrawal they had and give them a point value. And once you got over a, a certain threshold, you would start on medication, which was usually morphine. And then you would, once you started on morphine, you would uh, wean down very slowly by very small increments every other day or every day that they did well. And so even if things went well, you were still stuck there for three weeks or so. And so, um, and that's how everybody was doing it. There might be people were trying, a lot of the research was trying out, trying to figure out, well, what if we use methadone instead of morphine or a combination of medications? But it was all basically around the same theme. Uh, and it's and that was very standardized. And this is one of the dangers of standardization. So it was looked at, it became, uh, even though these, when you started to look into it, and this is where we started, we started to look into where all these things came from that we were doing and what the evidence behind it was. And it turns out there really wasn't any. It was just, it, was, it wasn't a standard model of care. It was a traditional model of care. It's just what we had always done and what everybody had always done. But the evidence was really lacking. And there was actually a fair amount of evidence that this was probably a really bad idea for how we were doing it. Uh, but what we kind of learned from this is, is, is with standardization, people, you start to look at that as the law. And so you, you must do it this way. And any changes have to be very incremental around it um, because that's just how it's done. And so you can look at that for our hospitalists how, or, or neonatologists, how we manage um, hyperbilirubinemia. So there were guidelines that came out 15 years ago, and there's been 15 years of research. But everyone just does it exactly <laughs> the way the guidelines say because that's what you have to do. That's what the law says, even though a lot of literature says this is probably maybe we shouldn't be doing it this way. <laughs> But we're sort of we feel like we're stuck doing it. We must do it. We've created this. We've sort of boxed ourselves in that this is how it has to be done. So what we were able to do with this neonatal absence syndrome thing was to implement these really, when you step back and look, really simple interventions that basically were things that were keeping the mom and baby together, which seemed pretty obvious. In other words, we were we were separating babies and moms, and it's just what's happening, you know, around most of the world, which. If you've seen the news in the last year or so, that's not usually a popular thing to do. Um, and so we were just keeping them together and doing really intensive baby care and doing things you would do for any cranky baby. And it really worked well. And the babies responded and the moms responded. And really our goal was to try to have this go well for the babies and moms in the hospital, but also at home when they went home. So in the previous system, we were taking care of the babies and handing them off to moms. Um, when they went home, they hadn't bonded with the baby. These were fairly vulnerable populations to begin with. And you're taking home this cranky baby that you really don't know that well. And so what we were doing now is saying, no, you, as the mom, you are the treatment for this baby. Uh, and 
And so that when they leave, instead of being upset that they're they're not ready to go home, they they don't know what to do, the moms are standing at the door saying, hey, can we go home? We're ready to go. And that's usually now our length of stay is under six days, um, which was a drop from 28 days, which just doesn't usually happen. And it's a pretty big change. And the national average is still way up there. We've been spreading, part of what we've been doing is trying to spread this approach uh, around the country and starting to have a lot of studies come out replicating what we've done. Uh, so there's more and more evidence. So that's that's been the one. We've gotten a, a fair amount of press and we're trying to get this out to more places. It's just, it's just a, a better way to do this. But it's, it, it shows how hard it is once you standardize something. If you're not really questioning that standardization vigorously, uh, you can get stuck doing things for long periods of time that 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 really are not in the best interest of our patients. That was a long answer to your question. No, that's truly remarkable. That's Thanks for sharing those. was so fun to listen to. Um, okay, can you give us examples of scholarship and quality improvement in our department, and how can junior faculty who are interested in quality and safety get involved in existing projects in the hospital or the department? Yeah, that's a great question because it's often, I was at the faculty meeting today, and, and, it, and it was sort of, discussed as there's scholarship and then there's quality improvement stuff. And that's not real. And, and that used to be how it was. Nobody would, un, if you submitted a quality improvement manuscript to somebody, nobody would know what to do with it. Uh, that is not the case anymore. There are now journals. There is a pediatric quality and safety journal. Pediat the pediatrics journal uh, will has a quality improvement section. They publish two to four quality improvement papers each month. Uh, a lot of journals are now uh, accepting quality improvement uh, papers. There's a special methodology and way to write up a quality improvement paper. It's actually pretty prescriptive, uh, which in a lot of ways makes it easier. You can just follow the the pattern of how you're supposed to do it. But we have had started to have over the last couple of years published quite a few. We've published about 15 quality improvement papers over the last the last two years, including three or four in this last uh, three or four months. Um, so there, it is. The, this is scholarly work, and this is stuff that people can use. So this is a, so when when you when we look at, uh, at some of these things that are published and we say, hey, this is something we, we need to improve and here's a roadmap for how to do it in real life. These are not, uh, this is actually saying, this is a place that had to figure out how to do it. And there's a difference of how this research works uh, it, or how this improvement work works compared to traditional research. And usually the way, I, the, the simplified way that I think about it is the goal of doing a, a research project might be to, to study an intervention, figure out what happens if you do this thing? You have you, have, you keep the populations similar, and then you, you change one thing and see what happens. And it may it may be something beneficial. It may be a little bit helpful. It may be a lot helpful. It may be make things worse. It may do nothing. With quality improvement, you actually pick your outcome ahead of time, and you say we want this to be better. So right now we're doing this whatever we're doing, thirty percent of the time we want to do it eighty percent of the time, and you keep doing things until you get up to that eighty percent. And so that's the idea. So the the goal is really to win. And not just to see if something works. So you know, you know, if it if it doesn't work, uh, you want to discard it or you want to change it so you can find something that does work. So you get to that. So, and then if you can do that, that's really valuable for people. If you've shown how to do it, and so for the the sickle cell, I expect I expect Farzana um, and Lynn to get a lot of calls about that because they have shown how to have a real impact on this population. And there's a roadmap for how to do it. Uh, and it's not in the in, it's not in these very specific types of settings or patients. It's in their whole population, and so they've really shown how to do it. And we did the same thing with the neonatal ab neonatal abstinence syndrome. People were able to just follow what we did, and take those interventions and do it in their own places. We and we even saw that in our own institution at Bridgeport 
hospital employee said, okay, so we do these five things, great. And the next day they did them and they were able to improve their their length of stay to the same level that we have here. And Lawrence Memorial has done, they've had some different challenges, but using the same complex, the same, same ideas uh, have done the same thing. I've gotten the same results. So that's that's one of the real values. It becomes very, it's very practical. And so instead of instead of getting this general idea of this is how you might improve something or the looking at what the evidence is, you actually are doing it and you're, and you're laying it out for people. So that there's a much more of an appetite to get these things published. And so we have had some success with it. So that's the first part, that they are, they, they are not separate. Scholar, quality improvement and scholarship are, uh, and, and if you're doing this with good methodology, uh, then, um, uh, and you have good results, these things can be published. And there's, again, a lot of avenues. A lot of journals are publishing this. How do you get involved in it? Um, so there's a, there's, uh, there are a lot of ongoing projects. There's probably a, a few dozen ongoing projects right now in some some state. But if it, it, what's most important is to find something that you actually care about. And some of the that the one of the sayings about quality is that is the most important part of quality is love. And so you have to actually care about it. And if you don't care about it, you're not going to do it. So if there, so it's there are projects that can be joined. There's a lot of safety ones trying to reduce harm in the hospital and also. Uh, trying to improve outcomes for our patients. There's about there's about six or seven uh, projects in the primary care center alone, uh, and and there's uh, the ED has probably another six or seven. So there's a lot of these projects going on, and so getting in, involved in those is great if it's an area you're interested in. But if you are an endocrinologist and you're taking care of kids with diabetes, then thinking about how to improve that, or 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 even knowing, hey, could we be doing this better? How do we start that process? That's probably a good way to start. And we have enough people now. The, the methodology for quality improvement, it's not rocket science, but it is different than what we're, how we're used to thinking about problems. And there are uh, now about six or seven people in a department who have formal training in quality improvement and have actually some time to help people work on these projects. And so if you are interested, you have an idea for something that seems most likely something that seems like it's not going well. And not even an idea for how to fix it. We don't. We don't even get to the ideas for how to fix things in, until uh, uh, several steps into the project. First, you try to define what the problem is and if there is a problem, and then figure out what we're doing, and then try to figure out what it would look like if we were doing it really well, and then start coming up with interventions. So, really, just having an idea like, "Hey, could this thing be better?" Uh, that's a great place to start. And and uh, me or, or 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 the members of the quality team would love to work with you on it. And you can get some scholarship out of it as well, as along with uh, along with helping your patients directly. <laughs> Great. So um, you mentioned um, having kind of a passion for what you would choose to do, and reaching out to others who might also be interested or have experience, including yourself. Um, do you have any specific advice for junior faculty who want a career in quality improvement? Uh, so it would be to start doing it. <laughs> it would be the idea is, is to one is is to get some of that training, and that is something the department will support if you're interested in getting some of this training. There's various degrees of there's online trainings through uh, the IHI, the Institute of Healthcare Improvement, which are excellent, um, and that will give you a great start, and, and that may be enough to really do quite a bit. And then there's more formal trainings. We we may be doing uh, we're doing some some. Um, sort of low-level trainings within the, the children's hospital. Uh, every four or five months, we start a new 
program where we do we do a few didactics and we work on projects with mentored projects with people. And then I think the health system will be doing something more formal, hopefully in the next couple of months. But we've uh, most of us have been trained, actually gone out to Cincinnati for training, and there's a number of trainings uh, around. So getting becoming it doesn't take much to really become uh, enough of an expert to do these things. There's there's as with anything there's there's much higher degrees of understanding of this, but really doing some of those base, basic courses gives you enough to be able to to go forward with this stuff. And so and and it can be stuff. Ideally, it's it's things that you're seeing every day, so so it can be embedded in what you're actually doing. So if you're in a clinic, how do you make your clinic run better? How do you make sure that your patients are getting what they're supposed to get, all of them? Um, and then and then that's where you figure out how to measure those things. So I, I think if you're if it's something you're interested in, it's th- it's starting to think about a how do I make sure I know what I'm doing and can learn it and and can and there's again plenty of people to talk to to get started on that. And we can help and we can support trainings and then starting to think about where there are problems or where or you have some time and you like to go and help in this area of, of the hospital or in the clinics or, or wherever. Um, so it's it's really uh, anywhere you look, there's there's and it can be it can be clinical ones. It can be operational ones. Um, Dinesh Prashenkar is working on a number of sort of operational things. How do they make the OR run better? Uh, the the amount of times that the first case in the OR runs on time is really low, and he's done some work to make that better, or how to make some of these clinics run more efficiently, which can really have an impact on on both the doctors and the patients. So there's there's those areas, and then there's the, the straight clinical parts of it as well. And we're even doing a project on trying to improve improve recycling in the NICU. Um, and so and the first thing we you know the first thing is really going is walking through the process. That was a really interesting one we started with where. where the NICU has has uh, much more recycling than I've seen anywhere else. There's actually <laughs> recycling bins in every patient room. Oh. But we walk through the we, we we tried to walk through what happens to a bottle when you recycle it. It goes in the bin and then it's supposed to go to a certain sp- spot near those elevators and then go downstairs. But there was a part missing. It turned out that the bins that would that would collect those uh, those bottles. They didn't have them on the NICU floors, so that so they were just being thrown down the dumpster. So they had all this effort for uh, to improve recycling, but in the year they've been there, nothing has been recycled. Oh, no. And so, but that's something you only understand by going really understanding the process and walking through it. And so, uh, so we were immediately able to fix that. So we knew we were at none when we started, and just by by fixing that one problem, we've increased it quite a bit. So. It's those kinds of things. There can be there can be all sorts of angles for it. So things that you care about are the are the way to go. Um, so, Dr. Grossman, if folks are excited by listening to you, what advice do you have for how junior faculty can turn their ideas into a project? Uh, so the first thing is if you if you don't have experience in it, is to come and talk to somebody who does have experience. And there's a number of people who've gone through. So I I've gone through the trainings and I'm. You know, can can help you through it. Beth Emerson, Sarah Candle, Tom Murray, um, Daniela Hockreiter is going through it now, as is Renee Barrett from the NICU. So that, that's uh, that's about six people right there who've gone through it. Um, Alexis Rodriguez has done extensive online training. Dinesh Pashenkar also has a, a very good understanding of this, having done some other training. So that's a, that's a big collection of people that are pretty spread into different areas uh, around. Uh, and then in the PCC, Mona Sharifi also has. A good background in this um, as well. So there's there's somebody in uh, around 
and there's really somebody who's been assigned to each section to help work with them. So that that person, um, there will be somebody there who who part of their job is to be a resource for you. Great. And you can always reach out to me, and I will send you to I'll either to, it's either me or or somebody I can send you to who who it is it is actually their job to help you. They have time to help you do that. Great. Um. And um, so you mentioned that there's a lot of projects going on. Is there a central kind of um, repository of quality and safety data for a hospital? Is it possible to access that data? And how could we <laughs> request access to it if there is? <laughs> so that is a uh, major work in progress. So uh, there is, we are, we are about to get a decent repository of, of data. Um, one of the great things about sorry, one of the great things about Epic, how many people have said that <laughs> that before? So uh, I always feel like you know Epic has been happening to us for five years, <laughs> but I think we're just starting to be able to take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. So every everything is in Epic. So everything we do, there are there are tens of thousands of pieces of information in Epic, and we can access all of it. And so there is a, there is so much more data available to us than there's ever been before. And so the bottleneck for us has been getting that data first and then getting it in a usable form. Um, and we are starting to finally make strides in that. There will be um, – there is an organization called JDAT, which stands for something. But you can <laughs> – anyone can actually submit a form to request data. So you can put in something if you were interested in – for you guys in bronchiolitis patients – Uh, You can look at, and we actually have a report like this, which would say everyone with a diagnosis of bronchiolitis, how did they get antibiotics? Did they get albuterol? And if they did, how many? Uh, And so you can get a report that will will produce that and will produce it continuously. Um, So we have a we have a bunch, you know, we created one for, for the neonatal abstinence syndrome kit. So we have one that just fills up and has lots and lots of data on it. Um, Francis has helped. Well, we had one and it sort of fell apart a little bit. They keep, they changed their system <laughs> and then Francis is rebuilding it. Um, so, so there are a lot of things like that. And uh, the, the Vermont Oxford network in, in the NICU, um, Renee Baird has actually, is almost finished building a real-time version of that where we get all of our data and you can use it real-time. Because a lot of these, you know, we get data sometimes that we send into collaboratives, but it's usually six months old. And it's hard to do anything actionable on that. So there will be. Um, it's, this is through. This is this data is all through the hospital. So getting getting in through the hospital system, there there will be a children's hospital link where there there will be all these reports under it. Now some of them are uh, they're sort of spreadsheets, and you have to work, you can download them and play with them. But we're also trying to get more of them where there will be actual graphical representations of the data, which is really what we're looking. So if you have figured out what's important. Um, and this actually goes along just to back up a second. We are trying to build for our for some of our common diagnoses to start with and building out with that pathways of how we will how we can approach care for kids with pneumonia uh, and, and that's bronchiolitis and things like that that we've started with and we have about 15 or 20 of those in the works right now and we will continue to expand those. But with those would come metrics. You'd look at for 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 pneumonia, what type of antibiotic are we using? And so you'd be able to track that, and that would be ideally there'd be a report that would show you, okay, we are using uh, ampicillin here 
80% of the time, which is about what we were shooting for good in ceftriaxone. But now if we look, we're able to look at that and say, hey, now ampicillin has gone down, which is recommended in the, in the AAP guidelines, it's now down to 50%, and we could look and find out, look into why that was happening. And so if you're in cardiology and you know that patients with this diagnosis are supposed to get these kinds of uh, treatments and tests and appointments, you, could, you can track that and be able to look and see um, where that's happened. What, one of the nice things about this, too, is you could – what we've done in the PCC is built one that looks at uh, immunization status. So you can see, well, we've got 90% of the kids have been immunized, but you can actually click on it and look at the 10% who haven't and find out who those kids are, and then you can actually intervene on them. So it can be both something that you can track and also use it to intervene. So it's not we're not trying to build scorecards with green and red lights on it, but something that's actually living and can be used. So that is very much a work in progress. Those The staffing of those data collection groups, is it's very understaffed and um, and there's, frankly, a lot more focus on those nationally reported adult metrics that Medicare cares about. So we're usually a little bit lower on the, on the, uh, on the list on that, but we are, we, are having, we are moving forward with that. And that is, that is accessible to anybody. And so we'll be able to send out in one of the one of, um, some of the – from the chair's office exactly how to access those things. And if you need help trying to, hopefully they will be easy where you, they're not hard to figure out on their own. But in the, in the interim, though, we can help you decipher what what they're trying to say. But also, if there's things that you want, if there's data you want, we can help work with you to get it, which is probably more important at this point because there isn't a lot of just random data that you might care about probably. So if you again are a if you're a pulmonologist and you're interested in and what your patients with certain diagnoses look like, we can we can pull that. Uh, and we can get a report where you'll have all of your patients with a certain diagnosis and you can whatever information you want to track, you can keep track of. Mm-hmm. So that, that I, I'm, I'm very, I'm uh, constantly optimistic and excited about that, <laughs> although it's slow moving. I think I, I try to picture what it's going to look like in five or ten years and I think it's going to be great. <laughs> but I think I probably thought that five years ago. Too. We're getting there. Um, you know, I know you started to talk about this a little bit earlier, but maybe you can just be more... Um, specific about it, what resources are available to junior faculty who want to gain skills and quality improvement? Can you tell us more about the conference that we've got in the hospital and all other national opportunities? Yeah, so the so um, what's the easiest thing in terms of learning about it is to is to this is free through the hospital is is using the modules on the uh, Institute for Healthcare Improvement IHI, and you can take those. There there's these little ten or fifteen minute bites of learning about quality, the philosophy behind it, uh, quality improvement and, and safety and, and, and how to use it. So that's, that's a great first place to start. And then the other resources is the people uh, that, that are part of the quality team, which is uh, me and Beth Emerson and Sarah Candle, Renee uh, Barrett, um, Alexis Rodriguez, Dinesh Pashankar, and Daniela Hockreiter as well, yeah, who, is, who runs things at, at L&M campus and also here. So that's um, so that's a group that is trained and is and as part of their job is to help. So that's the, that. We are there is we, we now there's now a um, a system quality uh, officer, uh, and so hopefully there'll be more uh, trainings available in house. But we're also uh, open to supporting people who want more formal training offsite. So that would be something, you know, we, we would that we're we're happy to support the more people who are. Uh, understand this stuff and and, uh, 
and are trained in it, the better, I think, for our, our institution. So we'd like to keep sending people to, to trainings for that. And then we do have a quality conference coming up uh, at the end of May. And we have we did our first one last year. And we have a speaker uh, coming as part of Grand Rounds this year, which will be a little bit easier for people to attend, um, who is the chief medical officer at Nationwide Children's Hospital, Rich Brilly, who's been a real leader in uh, patient safety and quality uh, nationwide, not just at Nationwide mm-hmm. Hospital, but but nationally, and um, and the hospitals in Ohio State, and where Nationwide is, and Cincinnati Children's Hospital, where where Dr. Billy came from, are are two of really the, the epicenters of of quality improvement in medicine, not just in pediatrics. And so uh, we'll hear a little about his experience, and we're also um, there will be a. Um, a poster session as well after Grand Rounds, uh, which there is still open uh, over for the next few weeks. So if you have a project that's even even underway, uh, we will we will support making the posters. Um, we had about twelve posters last year, and we think we'll have quite a quite a few more this year. And so we can see your works in progress or things that have been completed. Um, and so, and if you just are interested in what's going on, that's a great thing to come to. So you'll see all these, you can just check out these posters and see things people are working on it. And that may be things you want to become involved in or give you some ideas of, of uh, things that, um, that, that you, ideas you might have. And, and, and we can start working on the next steps right away. Great. Could you tell us the date of the conference? I hopefully can. Okay. I'm going to uh, guess... That it's May 29th. Okay. And uh, I'm going to just think in my head real <laughs> fast and not looking on my calendar at all. <laughs> That's um, my it is May 29th. <laughs> May 29th. Yes. Great. May 29th. Yeah. So it'll be at Grand Rounds on May 29th, Wednesday. Great. Thank you. <sighs> all right. So um, that was very helpful information. Um, what uh, What's the most important thing that you want? us as junior faculty to know about your role as the vice chair of quality and your team and when should we contact you and for what reason? Uh, so th- I think the the thing to know is that as vice chair of quality and my team, the, the whole purpose is to support everybody else in improving things that they care about. And that is that is the main job. So if there are things, even if you, you don't want to do a project or uh, but you think something could be better, we want to hear about it. And so the only way we know, I don't have a great sense of what's going on in endocrinology clinics. And so the only way I'm going to know is from the experts, which are the people doing it. So, so that, that is really our role. Is to, our, our whole job uh, is, is to make things better. Our, our mission is to strive to improve the care of the children that we care for. That's it. And so however we can do that, and it really, and that comes through all the providers and all the faculty. So, we are really there to support and help and serve and listen. So, it's not a bad job. <laughs> um, Matt, before we close, anything else you want to add? No, I don't think so. It's been great. This is the best podcast I've ever been on. <laughs> no, <not> only one. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's been, this was fun. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much for the wonderful discussion, and thank you for your time today.